I was asked to host a session at the 24-hour transcontinental Popperian Zoom meet and greet that was on January 9th, 2021, and it was organized by rkarlpopper.net. At the last minute, I found out that David Deutsch himself was attending the session. What follows is the result. First of all, I want to welcome everybody. Um, it's kind of nice to see. Uh, I think this has been our uh, largest session. Kind of wanted to start by introducing, I think most of us probably know uh, David, uh, but I wanted to just give a little bit of an intro um, uh, uh, to David um, by pointing out uh, that, first of all, the age of enlightenment uh, saw the rise of what some of us recognize as Popperian tradition. While Popper's work may not be that well known, the tradition he presented or talked about has been with us uh, for a few centuries now. I think that David Deutsch has done a wonderful job at bringing Popper's work to people through his books. And he's also encouraged a culture of sharing uh, and criticism of ideas. And most of all, by making himself accessible uh, through social media. I think he's pretty accessible as some of us know uh, through Twitter, which uh, is not such a common thing among people who are specialists in certain fields. His work, optimism and interactions have inspired a culture whereby people have come together to take Popper's ideas to a new level. But this has led to groups such as Four Strands run by um, Bruce Nielsen and others. Individuals have been inspired to create podcasts, YouTube videos, and websites to encourage an open-ended growth of knowledge. David's book opened me up to the ideas that impacted my life in more ways than I can mention in a few words. My primary interest is in foundations of physics, and I'm also an educator. I find myself starting my physics class every year now for the last couple of years uh, with a discussion um, with the, uh, David's uh, TED talk on uh, good explanation. And it's interesting how that leads to all sorts of interesting discussions throughout the school year as we uh, look into physics and just overall the connection of physics and reality. You know, we talk about reality, we even talk about multiverse sometimes, and it really gets kids into it. So, uh, so I really want to thank uh, David for, for making himself available. Um, and um, thanks a lot, David, for coming today. And I'm going to hand it over to Bruce now um, and let him self-introduce. All right. Thank you, Sadia. Uh, I'm Bruce Nielsen, and uh, I, I think I was asked to help host this session because uh, my experience is fairly typical of probably a lot of yours. So uh, back in 2009, uh, believe it or not, I was a religious blogger, and I ha had uh, fellow religious bloggers suggest to me to read uh, David Deutsch's book, um, Fabric of Reality. And I was enthralled with it. So I started actually blogging about it and things like that. And um, it, it, I spent years actually trying to refute what was in his book and ended up reading a whole lot of different books that were related subjects and uh, eventually became very convinced of all four of the strands he mentions in um, uh, Fabric of Reality because of my inability to refute them and ability to find good criticism of, of them that he hadn't already responded to. And uh, so eventually this even led to me going back to school. I, I wanted to study this more deeply. I wanted to go back to school and get a master's degree in computer science to study computational theory and related subjects. And so this is something that really has ended up impacting my life quite a bit. Um, just in a lot of ways, starting off as a hobby and then eventually now maybe even eventually turning into a career change. So um, I'm also the, I've started a podcast, the Theory of Anything podcast, which is loosely based on David Deutsch's Four Strands. And, and um, Sadia mentioned the, the Four Strands blog, fourstrands.org. 
Um, I, I'm the one kind of behind that that runs that and hosts that. And uh, my co-host Cameo is also here. Cami, do you want to do a quick introduction? Yes, I do. Hi, I'm Cameo Duran, and I'm Bruce's co-host on the Theory of Anything podcast. And everything I know about David Deutsch came from my um, involvement with Bruce. Uh, I think one of the first times Bruce and I had a conversation, it really quickly veered into the popper land and uh, his his passions around the four strands um, and was the primary reason we started the podcast together just because we really enjoyed discussing knowledge and and that's that's why I'm here. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for hosting this wonderful thing. I was here earlier also. It's been great. So I was thinking a little bit something about the the transition that you write about, uh, like your explanation of why uh, humankind was stuck in static societies has to do with irrational memes. But if that is a, because you need that, the conception of anti-rational memes, because you, because that's the explanation for why this exponential growth didn't happen, because you don't need to assume so much for it to happen. You just make uh, people make small changes into their ideas and then that will lead to exponential growth but then that seems to why wasn't the static society why didn't it get stuck completely like what if this is the question before the enlightenment like that the, the argument is something like uh, the enlightenment could have happened earlier but the enlightenment happened at in a particular culture and wasn't that culture different than the static culture that preceded it? Something like this. I, I don't know if this question. Uh, yeah, there is a thing which um, uh, maybe isn't clear in my presentations. Um, when we think about the enlightenment as distinct from uh, what happened before, there's a selection effect that we tend to think that what happened before was like the Enlightenment, except with static societies. But the thing is, long-lived static societies are rare. I, 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 not as rare as the Enlightenment society, but, but still quite rare. Most societies, most cultures that have ever existed have not survived very long at all. Um, they, but, but because they haven't, uh, so back in prehistory, it may have happened um, more often than, than a, a um, static culture evolving was simply a culture evolving which did change and then destroyed itself because its, its changes were not in the direction that would stabilize it. For example, they wouldn't have had uh, traditions of criticism, for example. So maybe they were changing and as a result they made uh, many mistakes and as a result they were unable to correct them and so they were killed by the neighboring tribe or they ran out of food and didn't know what to do or whatever so um, the sort of natural state of nature if, if you can uh, use that concept with humans you can't really but but the the state that uh, humans or pre-humans were in when creativity first evolved was maybe better described as just continual chaos and failure 
rather than staticity. And then staticity sort of emerged out of that sometimes. But because staticity made the cultures uh, last longer and grow more, um, uh, th th those are the ones that we kind of see when, when, when we look back. We, we see the, the ancient Egyptian empire and that, that kind of thing. Uh, and we don't see the, the many failures that, that must have outnumbered that, that culture. Right. I don't know if that answers your question. Maybe I misunderstood. I think, it, yeah, that was not how I what I got from 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 the book so far. So it was a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, uh, hi, hi, David and everyone. Uh, my my name is uh, Pei Yuan, and um, uh, thank you so much for for coming. Uh, uh, I think uh, the reason I was being recommended to your book is is that uh, I was asking a person on how to do research and then he recommended this book to me and uh from from his understanding the the most important take from this book is um maybe just for me but uh it, it's about uh self-error correction um and um i don't know if you have so the first question is do you have any uh advice to how this kind of self-error correction can can take place is there uh, a set of questions that uh, a, a person can can question himself uh, in, in his everyday life, uh, for example, or, or, or in his own research. Um, uh, so this is my first question. Uh, my my second question is, uh, um, I think uh, in the end, uh, we as human. Uh, in, in all sciences, we what we we're trying to really understand is about causality. Um, um, but uh, the problem uh, to me is that um, I'm not a, a a theoretical physicist, and I um, and I get a sense that um, my understanding of causality can be very naive and um, far from what actually is being considered as causality in exist like the space-time causality for example in, in, in physics um so i uh but I, I i think at times i i can see why uh things are not causal um and are merely correlations but i i kind of f find it really hard to give a give a definition of what is causality and and um and in in, in this scenario how can i uh, as a researcher uh, trying to probe into this, uh, these causal uh, relations. Um, this is my second question. Uh, my, my third question, and this is the last question. Uh, so I, um, right now I am a, a grad student uh, working in statistics. Uh, and uh, it, I think uh, fundamentally it's a, it's a problem of induction and uh, that we're, we're trying to um, combat in our everyday life. Um, so um, my, my question to you is, uh, what do you think is the most important thing uh, to do uh, for, for statisticians or a statistics researcher to, to help in, in the process of uh, scientific dis discovery? Um, and, and this kind of, uh, uh, what, what do you think would, would, would be the most important thing to do in uh, 
for, for a statistician in the next uh, 50 years or 30 to 50? <laughs> well, one can't prophesy, of course. Well, to answer the last question first, because uh, I think that's the easiest. Uh, Statistics is is uh, interesting and useful branch of mathematics, and the way it enters into science is that it 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 is it, it enters only in what I call in my book the perspiration phase. Um, that is, uh, it is it is the last step in the or the, the the last step in discovery. It it is the part that that is not creative but mechanical uh, so, so if we if we have a, a mass of statistics and use statistical theory to get an answer out of that the answer was really created before the data were even collected and that part doesn't involve statistics so uh, you know doing statistics one has to understand that this is a branch of mathematics and that uh, it, it has nothing to do with um, creativity. So some people think that creativity is just extracting knowledge out of data, but that is the opposite of what uh, the truth is, and uh, as Popper has taught us. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I can see from your book um, that uh, it can be kind of used as a tool to uh, reject hypothesis, but uh, it seems that uh, it is, do you think it's likely that it can be used to discover hypothesis as well, or maybe like not so I think that's so much fundamentally impossible um, for the same reason that, that any piece of mathematics can't lead to discovery. It, it, the, the piece of mathematics isn't about the world unless you have a theory that first have a theory that connects it to the world. Right. Um, now, as I say, speaking of Popper, that, that leads me to your first question. Um, I, I, it, there is a very nice um, transcript on the internet somewhere of um, the lectures that, or some of the lectures that Popper gave to his um, uh, scientific method class in the LSE when he, when he first joined the LSE. And the first lecture, I think it's the first lecture, begins with him saying, I think I'm the only professor of scientific method in the British Empire. And the, the first thing I want to say about this is that there is no such thing as scientific method. And uh, I, I think this, is, uh, this applies uh, equally well to other aspects of uh, Popper's um, philosophy. Uh, there, there is no such thing as a philosophical method or a self-improvement method or a psycho psychological method. It, it's all opportunistic. It's, it's opportunistic problem solving. Um, um, however, uh, so when, when you said, you know, maybe the book, the theme of, of my book is all problem solving and maybe the theme of all Popper's books is also problem solving. But, but the thing is, there is no method for that. <laughs> if there is a method for there are various methods for avoiding doing that and uh, it's a good thing to uh, to uh, try to um, escape from those methods if they are in one's culture or in one's psychology but that by itself doesn't doesn't do anything positive it merely frees one 
from from uh, the, the sabotage of of those methods. Um, so right, yeah, so there, there is no about, method. It's all about creativity. Yes. Uh, and now, uh, what was your second question? I, I remember the third and first, but uh, the, the second question is about causality. Oh yes. Well, in uh, what you would uh, find if you looked at modern physics and modern philosophy uh, was what they say about causality is that they basically deny that there is such a thing. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, most studies of the foundations of physics uh, conclude falsely, I think, that because of uh, the determinism of the determinism of the laws of physics and the block universe and the block multiverse and whatever that 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 uh, and because of the reversibility of the laws of motion in physics that the, they they equally well predict the past from the future as well as the future from the past or almost anything from almost anything else uh, that that there is no room for causation in that picture and I I think that there is it's just that um, uh, causation is a high level concept and and there's there's no mention of um, difference between liquids and solids or or backwards and forwards in time either in fundamental physics and yet there are well-developed physical theories of both of those things and uh, the causality hasn't really been important in physics um, for um, maybe the last couple of hundred years but that's that's not really very important um, in, in in constructor theory if i can plug that for a moment uh there it's it's much easier to um frame a theory of uh, or frame explanations in terms of causes than it is in in uh the prevailing mode of explanation so i i uh, and in in other fields than, than physics causation is important and attempts to eliminate causation and try to pretend that one can explain things like human behavior in, in a deterministic way are uh, dead ends or worse. So that's my answer to the second question. So Ella, could I please, uh, uh, let me go over to you next. Okay, so, so David, <laughs> I'm, I'm very interested in um, artificial general intelligence. Um, in, which is to say, I'm, I'm interested in trying to understand the mind and the way that the mind creates knowledge at a, little, at a level of detail that is sufficient that we can implement it on a computer. And so my question is about the, the logic of how, the, how minds manage to create knowledge and, um, and the extent to which it's similar or different to biological evolution and, and the way that knowledge is created there. So uh, my, my question is, do you think that um, replicators are involved in the way that the mind it, that minds um, manage to create knowledge? I think in, in biological evolution, we know from from you know Darwin and and Dawkins' theory that the replicators are sort of the key uh, explanation for for why biological evolution manages to create knowledge. And so I'm interested in in whether you think that there's something similar going on in the human mind, some sort of pool of competing replicators, or do you think that there's some other process that's responsible for for creating knowledge in human minds? Uh, to some extent, that's a question of uh, implementation. Um, but I, I think, well, and, and I don't know how, the, how creativity works in the human mind. You know, if, 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 if I knew, I'd be, I'd be really working hard on that now, if I had any kind of idea that I thought was halfway viable. Um, 
in regard to replicators, um, my guess is that there that that's not how the implementation works in the mind. There could be a logically equivalent implementation in terms of replicators. But the thing is, in the mind or in a computer, you could you could uh, save memory space just by rather than by having multiple copies, you just have one copy with a number. You know, this this there are ten thousand of these, which is a bit like saying, um, you know, this this thing is worth ten thousand of this other thing, which hasn't uh, done the equivalent of replication. Um, uh, I, I should say, as I say in the book uh, as well, that I don't think we understand biological evolution well enough either. Um, we we and maybe one route towards um, AGI would be to uh, do biologically the equivalent of biological artificial biological evolution first. Uh, it, it may or may not be a good route. You know, the the replicating a bird's wing was not the best route to artificial flight, and and so uh, although the underlying theory is the route towards it, the uh, the underlying theory of how a bird's wing works. Is the is the way to make an airplane? Um, so I I doubt that it it's replicators. I doubt that there are replicators in in the brain. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, Raiden, could you uh, you can please go ahead. Hello. Um, hi, I'm a PhD student uh, at UBC in, in machine learning, um, and. I keep trying to get people to think about knowledge in my community and they keep confusing it with information. Um, and I have a very difficult time uh, explaining to them that I'm trying to refer to something else without just pointing them to your books and Popper's books. Uh, and so I guess I'm curious to know uh, how you think about the difference between knowledge and information. And then also if you have any uh, communication strategies um, that you could offer in terms of how to uh, uh, get people to realize that I'm, I'm trying to talk about something uh, that's not information when I say the word knowledge. Thanks. Yeah, the only communication strategy that, that works, apart from spending many years writing a book, is, is conversation. And you, you, just, you just get together with someone and try to overlap your problem situation and then, and then something happens. Um, uh, the the uh, I think of knowledge as um, as a species of of information, um, uh, and I've at various times used uh, several different uh, characterizations of what uh, makes it different from other um, information. And um, my my most recent um, choice. Is is to say that knowledge is uh, information with causal properties. There's causation arising again. So um, knowledge is is um, that that property of a computer program that makes it do something useful. Um, and for example, you know, you have a word processor, um, and the the word processor is processor is useful because it knows. It 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 has the programmer, of course, is the is who generated the knowledge. But the programmer has put into the program knowledge of things like there are such things as words, there are such things as letters and sentences. There is such a thing as correct spelling and incorrect spelling, and 
and so on. And there are uh, different aspects of the context which have to be taken into account and, and, and so on. So, um, so knowledge is, is uh, information with causal power. Um, also a, a, an interesting thing about it, both knowledge and information are very unusual, they're abstractions. And many people don't like to believe that abstractions even exist. So that's something you have to persuade them of. But, but then uh, further, information and knowledge are extremely unusual abstractions because they only exist when they're physically instantiated. And that's another confusing concept that, uh, that I sometimes have to, uh, have to uh, work hard to persuade people or rather to, to get people to see what I'm even talking about, whether they, whether they agree or not, uh, what I'm even saying. Um, so yeah, uh, I, uh, um, I don't know that I have anything better to say about how to persuade people of things. I, I, I don't know that it's even a good idea to try to persuade people of things. Uh, what, what's, what's more important is to have an interesting discussion. i to hear that you struggle with it too. All right, um, Clovis, uh, would you like to go ahead, please? Yes, thank you. Thank you, uh, David, for doing this. Um, and my, my question is about moral philosophy and moral truth. I'm, I'm concerned, I, this is a topic you've touched before, I'm concerned about uh, how the is-ought dichotomy is interpreted as often uh, hopelessly nihilistic, that it condemns us to relativism. And the idea that if moral values can't, can't be derived from facts, they can't be true because they don't refer to objective entities. So for many people who believe in moral truth, the dichotomy is, is often perceived as a, a deep problem and a deep mystery. And to, to me, that seems to be an error because the impossibility of deducing values from facts does not amount to a demonstration that they're false. It's not a refutation. And in a sense, moral ideas can be refuted by mere facts any more than they can derive from them. And I find myself in the, I think the minority of people who believe the his hub dichotomy is true, but who also believe that it doesn't keep us from creating moral knowledge. And uh, Popper described a position that he called critical dualism that I, I think that I interpret in this way. And so my question is this, I, I know that you've talked about the fact that morality is a form of knowledge. And I wanted to ask you, how do you understand the is hub dichotomy? How does it bear on your concept of moral truth? And does the concept of truth apply to moral propositions? Thank you. Uh, well, uh, my opinion is it definitely does. And I agree with uh, everything you said there. So that, that's basically my, my position as well. Um, uh, Popper, uh, it's a bit hard to interpret on, on issues of objective morality because he doesn't really discuss that point. You, you can only infer Popper's position as far as, far as I know anyway. Uh, I haven't read the, of everything he wrote. Um, uh, you can infer when he says, for example, that we can make moral progress, then, uh, and, and also that, that uh, there, there is such a thing as making progress in philosophy generally, that he certainly rejects the position that science is the only thing one can make progress in. Um, I, I uh, like to use the argument that, that when people say that there's a difference between the possibility of progress in morality and in science in that 
in science, we have this method of experiment that, that can take us forward. And in philosophy, we don't. Well, uh, I think that's an, an unpopularian point of view because, because uh, that, that, that's more like the Duem Quine view. It's, it's a bit arbitrary to say that scientific knowledge is possible if at the same time you're going to take that critique of moral knowledge seriously. Because the same critique that the deniers of moral knowledge take seriously has been used by many people to deny that scientific knowledge is possible. And all knowledge is conjectural. The fact that you can't deduce it from anything is, is irrelevant in all fields. Knowledge can never be deduced. So the ought is um, a distinction, merely says that you can't deduce moral knowledge from scientific knowledge. But so what? Uh, you can't deduce scientific knowledge from anything. So you can't deduce moral knowledge, but we're, we're not after deducing knowledge. And uh, what, what we're after is solving problems. And there have to be moral problems. As soon as you have a creative entity that is solving problems, then um, the moral issues arrive, arise because you've, you've got to wonder what, is, what should I want? What, when, when, you are, when you're wondering what should I do next, um, you, you can't gaze into your navel and find what you want about everything. You've got to think about what you want and criticize it and create knowledge about it. So I think one can take a completely uniform view of all those fields. Um, and, uh, uh, and therefore the autist distinction as it is not epistemologically relevant. It's, it's not relevant to what, what kind of knowledge we can create. Um, actually, I had a question uh, which was similar to that, if you guys don't mind uh, me interjecting in there. Um, uh, my question was about, uh, you know, usually when, when I talk to people about that, um, one of the questions that's raised is that when it comes to science, uh, we all, uh, you know, the laws of nature constrain everything, like we don't have a choice in that. But, but the moral, uh, moral seems to be different. I guess one of the differences between morality is that even if we claim that we discover moral principles, then we still have a choice. We're not bound. It's as if they feel like there is something more concrete in science. Um, would you like to say something about perhaps maybe you have any ideas about roots of morality uh, in the sense of uh, uh, do you tie it to... Um, I've listened to your discussion with Sam Harris. It doesn't seem like you tie it to anything to do with neuroscience, but do you think about it? Is there something at the back of your mind uh, as to what are the roots of morality? Uh, I, I think in general, it's, it's, it's not very helpful to think about what the roots of something are, um, because when you find some roots, there are always going to be roots beneath that, and, and you'll never get to the bottom of it. So... Uh, the foundations are sometimes useful, but but not because the, not because they're underlying everything, but because they they reveal something of 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 the structure of things. Um, uh, the when you you know I'm 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 a theoretical physicist. I work on the foundations of physics. When you make a terrible mistake at the foundations of physics you may get ridiculed and you may uh, lose your income and, uh, and so on. But when you make a mistake at the foundations of morality, the physical world will come for you much worse 
So it's it's not it's not really, uh, and I'm not only talking about other people coming from for, for you. Even if you were a person on a desert island who made moral mistakes, it would cause physical trouble for you. You would you would um, uh, make mistakes in your life, which might shorten it. Um, just from making a mistake in morality. So I, I don't think this, this distinction that, that morality is a matter of choice is true, uh, or at least it's no more a matter of choice than any other idea is a matter of choice. We, we choose and create our own ideas according to our values about what, what's true. But our values about what's true, even though they are completely changeable, are not at all arbitrary. It's, it's like, it's, it, maybe the best example of this is pure mathematics. Some people are reduced to claiming that mathematics is arbitrary. It's just, a, really, mathematics is just the study of mathemat what mathematicians think it is um, uh, clever or glorious or whatever to think about, uh, which makes, uh, reduces mathematics to basically a study of of human brains, mathematicians' brains, or the, the, the brains of a community of mathematicians. But it's simply not true. Mathematics is the study of uh, abstractions that, are, that uh, actually exist and properties of them that exist and are independent of us. We can choose which mathematical objects we think are interesting uh, and, and worth trying to understand, but uh, we can be mistaken, and we can we can uh, follow dead ends. Um, I think in mathematics, it's also unusual to run into a brick wall like that. And uh, by the way, I, I think that running into a dead end and making large mistakes, unless they kill you, um, it's uh, it's not all bad. Uh, in, in fact, it can be just as good as successfully discovering things, which. So the latter can can um, can leave you feeling empty, um, uh, whereas uh, as Popper says, if if you're engaged with problems, even if you never solve them, then you're still having fun. I I have one quick question. I hope is quick. I I enjoyed reading your constructor theory paper. You made a very big deal in that paper, though, about it underpinning the rest of physics. And I, I kept wondering why that was, because it seemed like it would be a valid theory about constructors in the same way, you know, information theory is a valid theory about information, or computational theory is a valid theory about computation, without the claim that it underpins all of physics. So what was the motivation there to say that? And is that an absolutely necessary motivation, or would it still be a good theory without that? Uh, well, I guess that, that no particular motivation is ever essential. Um, but um, the, the reason, uh, I think the constructor theory could stand on, on by itself, but rather like philosophy, if there were no applications to anything else, then it would be useless. It would just be a piece of mathematics. Uh, the, the reason I think it's important that it underlies many areas of physics is just that I think it does underlie them. I, I, I uh, I uh, think that there are several areas of physics where progress has been stalled because of the assumption that the prevailing mode of explanation, namely initial conditions and laws of motion, uh, is the only legitimate form. That, that it, it's kind of 
without ever being stated explicitly, it's it's taken for granted that a valid explanation in physics has to be of that form. And yet, already in existing physics, there are explanations which are of, of the constructor theoretic form instead and cannot be e expressed in terms of initial conditions for souls of motion. And that is kind of shrugged off because, because people think it's not legitimate. So in thermodynamics, there, there are explanations that seem to directly conflict with explanations in terms of initial conditions and laws of motion. And the, the usual, the, the conventional response to that is to say that basically to say, oh, well, thermodynamics isn't really true. It's just an approximation scheme. And, and at root, uh, these quantities like work and heat and the laws of thermodynamics are, are, are not actually true. Um, but uh, that's just a prejudice. And, and my feeling is that in, in that area and in many other areas, such as theory of computation um, and in uh, areas of physics where initial conditions and laws of motion approach has been successful, I think in all those areas, there is scope for making progress via constructor theory if constructor theory is true. Uh, and not, and probably not if it isn't. And we'll find out if it's true, but by only by trying to make such progress using it. Thank you. Um, I wanted to give Dwarkesh a chance to ask a question. He wasn't able to, on, through his interface, raise his hand, and he did it about this point. So are you still there, and can you ask your question? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks. Uh, hey, hey, David, I'm a big fan. I just wanted to ask you, um, this isn't my view, but I just want to play devil's advocate here, and I because I don't have a good rebuttal to this argument, which is uh, there's a Bayesian critique of uh, Popper, which is that verification and disconfirmation both reveal information about a theory, and that um, while Popper can deal with disconfirmation, there's no way to integrate uh, evidence that verifies a theory, and that so like Bayes is backwards compatible with Popper, uh, in that it can ver integrate verifying and dis uh, disconfirming evidence. It just weighs disconfirming evidence higher and updates heavier based on that. So how would you deal with that criticism? Um, there, there, I think the, the, um, the context in which that criticism arises, I think, contains mistakes. Uh, first of all, the, the context is that, that there is some data uh, or information which we receive and then we have to make sense of it, either by refuting a theory or by confirming a theory or, or whatever, but, but we start off with data. That just isn't true as we have learned from Popper. Um, so in, in that respect, the, the whole picture of science and of thinking generally that, that underlies that critique is just wrong. Um, Secondly, so that, that's, you know, like where science is coming from. Then there's where science is going to. So um, this, this uh, uh, critique suggests that what we're trying to do, that the thing that where science is going to, is getting justified beliefs that, that, that uh, you know, what we really want to do is to make, <clears throat> is to make the probability that we assign or the credence that we have for true theories should go up. We, we need some method that will make the credence of true theories go up. And then they say, well, Popper, first of all, Popper seems to only have a method that makes credences go down. So 
you know, how, how can that possibly be a picture of science? Well, the answer is that science from beginning to end doesn't resemble that picture. Um, so um, science is problem-based and the way it proceeds is by conjecture. And after it has problems and conjectures, it has criticisms. And none of that appears in the Bayesian picture. So of course they're going to think that Popperian, the Popperian view of science doesn't adequately represent science, but what has really happened is that their picture of science, which is basically empiricism, inductivism, some kind of that, is just wrong, root and branch, false root and branch. All right, thank you. Um, Mike? Uh, yes, hi everyone. Uh, hi, David. Um, so I, I was uh, wanting to ask you about modes of explanation and knowing how important they are to um, kind of structuring some of your, um, some of your work. And uh, Bruce just brought up constructor theory, which I think you might um, describe as his own mode of explanation. And um, I was trying to particularly link it to um, computation. So um, I have your, your shorthand, if um, you can't program it, you haven't understood it. Um, I was wondering if you follow that, um, is inventing a new mode of explanation, is that synonymous with um, inventing like a new type of algorithm? Is the, is the link to computation and explanation, can it be kind of forged in that way or, but, um, but not yet, don't, you don't have to speak specifically just to that, so. Uh, I'm reluctant to reduce things to algorithms. <laughs> uh, I think that usually sucks the creativity out of the picture uh, and, and uh, makes it wrong. Uh, so, um, uh, the, uh, I'm trying to think whether this maxim, if you can't program it, you haven't understood it, which, which, uh, is really a, a bit of a paraphrase of Feynman, uh, uh, whether this applies to everything or just theories about how information works in the world, uh, and in particular AGI and, and so on. So if, if you can't program an algorithm, you haven't understood it. If you can't program any kind of information process, then you haven't understood it. Um, if, if, you, if you can't, say, say you have a process of um, how stars work, uh, a theory about how stars work, then it's also true, I'm thinking out loud here, then it's, it's, it's also true that if you can't program that, you haven't understood it. But uh, that doesn't mean programming every, the motion of every molecule in the star. It, it means programming the things that the features of the theory, of your explanatory theory, that your theory says uh, explain the star. So it's those that you have to be able to program. But finding out what those are is not a matter of programming anything. It's a matter of creativity and problem solving. So uh, my tentative answer is that, that, that that maxim doesn't apply to everything. It doesn't apply to, um, to creating the knowledge to do that. And uh, Mark, would you like to go next? Yes, you can hear me? If so. Yes. Um, so yeah, thanks for doing this so much. It's, it's really an honor on, um, to talk to you. But uh, I find that all the things that we, that we can assign objectivity to in life, I feel like the hardest one for me personally is aesthetics. So for instance, I like, I find the K paintings of like Altamira and Lasco to be beautiful, but that the reason I do is, is because of how old they are. And it's, 
it's humankind speaking to us from 30,000 years ago, trying to survive the harsh, the harsh ice ages. And I feel like if someone painted the steak rotunda the same way with the bisons and everything and said it was a masterpiece, I'd probably want to slap them in the face and say, I don't find that very beautiful. So I don't know if me ascribing aesthetic value to the cave paintings of Lascaux because of the romantic notion of humankind painting them so many years ago and maybe the first, and then what are they trying to say if they're trying to say anything else at all? Is it fair to describe aesthetic value to that for reasons like that? Or should we just judge it for just how it looks and it shouldn't be the environment who did it and what they're trying to say, if that makes sense. Yes, uh, I think to some extent, this is just a matter of, of um, the fact that, that um, language and terminology uh, aren't, we, we don't have an absolutely exact language to describe everything we want to talk about. So often we use metaphors and often we use uh, terminology that slides over from one area to an adjacent area and so on. So a mathematician can describe an equation as beautiful. Um, a, a, a person can describe someone's mind as beautiful. And, and they mean something by that. They mean something objective by that. But it is not the same thing as what we, what we mean uh, when we describe, say, a piece of music as beautiful or a sculpture as beautiful. And even with those things, we may describe a painting as beautiful because it is very apt in a certain situation. Like, I don't know, how, how do you judge Goya's painting of, of some partisans getting shot? Um, how do you separate the... Um, the beauty of the fact that he's captured, by the way, a very ugly situation uh, so well. How do you separate that from beauty in the, in the sense that the, if the same skill uh, and insight had been used to describe uh, an orange harvesting festival, um, it, 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 it uh, could also describe that as beautiful, but there'd be a different kind of beauty being described there. I think there is there is such a thing as artistic beauty, which, which is often mixed with other values that we want to put into an object. Um, and um, maybe it, we shouldn't get hung up on whether that is really beauty as kind of essentialism to, to uh, ask that. The, the, the thing is that there are many um, features of an object that are desirable and um, the, the cave paintings are desirable in one sense and are clearly rubbish in another sense. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It, it, if, 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 we, some, if somebody wanted to, if somebody was interested in understanding the distinction there more deeply, then they would probably find themselves inventing a more refined terminology for it. They, they would, rather than say, is this really beautiful? They would say, there is a thing that we want. It is this, you know, I'm going to explain it. And the cave painting has that, has heaps of that. And there's this other thing, which we, we want in a different context, which, which, which uh, the people who did the cave painting also wanted, but weren't very good at achieving. And, you know, if, if somebody was spending their life on uh, teasing out that distinction very finely, 
then they'd probably invent a, 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 a more fine tech, um, terminology. All right, uh, Jesse? Hey, David, uh, I have a question that might be somewhat personal, personal, but have a lot of implications in a lot of people's lives. And I know Luli's talked about this, uh, in the, uh, so it revolves around just uh, romantic relationships, personal relationships, uh, and the whole dichotomy of, of genes versus memes. Of we need society to procreate now. We don't have, uh, you know, we, we don't live an infinite life. We know immortality is uh, possible in some sense, but I guess there is a sense of like we want to create these best the best memes that we can. We want to create best the best explanations that we have in our lives. But uh, how do you think about that in terms of? children and education whether or not to to have a family or be in a relationship or just work on uh you know things like constructor theory and agi and life extension or biotech or uh just really curious to see how you think about all those ideas uh i i don't think it's a good idea to to uh try and save the world in the in the sense of um uh subordinating one's own uh, values to what one thinks the world's values are. So maybe the world needs a larger population. Um, yeah. I, I, my guess is that it does. That, that, in other words, that that would be a good thing, um, that, that, that the world as a whole would thrive better if it had more people in it. But to, and other people, of course, think that, that the world would thrive better if it had fewer people in it. Uh, I think in both cases, it, it's 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 a bad idea to subordinate one's own life to that objective. Yeah. Um, I I I don't think it's even, for example, a, a good idea in my own life to try to publicize my own ideas. I do it to some extent, but I don't subordinate it to to the fun of actually um, trying to solve problems and. Some of the problems are only of interest to me and some are interest to me and like half a dozen other people in the world and some are interest to, of interest to more people. But, but the way I would choose what to do is uh, try to meet my own values. And to the extent that my own values include having preferences about how the world is, then... Uh, then the, the, the meeting my values would include trying to make the world better. But, but trying to make the world better as a, an overarching principle for how to make personal decisions, I think, is a mistake. I don't know if that's your question. Yeah, uh, I guess that, that answers a little bit of it. And then it's just like uh, being young, a big part of culture in general and society is just finding... Uh, you know, a significant other or a partner, and there's the whole debate against uh, polyamory and uh, or to have a, a committed monogamous relationship, and uh, that is a uh, you know it drives a lot of culture. Yeah, well, di different people find answers in different ways, and they they have extremely diff different problem situations. And I guess uh, it from the context of the beginning of infinity of. Uh, like what was actually useful. It was useful to make more people and to do that people create, uh, had families to do that in a kind of divide and conquer kind of sense, whether they knew it or not, right? People kind of, uh, when they team up, they can 
do they're, they're more than the sum of their parts. Yes, uh, although there, there, are, there are many ways of teaming up and each yeah. of them has, has better and worse ways of doing it. Yeah. So, you know, you, you form a society, you, you form uh, friends, uh, you form families, and uh, all of those can involve uh, mistakes in how to do it. And, uh, yeah. and we, we've, we've got here um, by, by people making progress with that, but, but uh, you know, for most of history, they didn't make progress. Um, yeah. All right. Okay. So, Tracy, you want to go next? Uh, Tracy? Sure. Hi. Oh. Hi. So I'm hoping this is just more of a fun, lighthearted question, maybe. But um, on Thursday, I woke up. Uh, I had a dream that I had gotten the opportunity to meet you, David. Um, and the very next day, I find out that suddenly there's this opportunity to meet you with this Zoom meeting. Uh, exciting for me. Um, and kind of strange. Uh, so maybe the fun part, could you maybe speak to the human brain regarding its potential for um, quantum prediction maybe, or just the idea of quantum prediction in general? So I'm not entirely sure what you mean by quantum prediction, but predicting the growth of knowledge is inherently impossible. And um, there's no reason to think that quantum effects might be uh, implicated in the human brain. And um, the idea that quantum theory has kind of mystical, that, that it justifies various um, traditional mystical ideas, always comes from mistakes about quantum theory. It doesn't come, it, it, the, the real world doesn't implement those. So um, I, I think there wasn't a connection in that, that you know, I would, I would guess that there wasn't a connection in that respect. Um, uh, maybe, that's, um, maybe that's a boring reply, but I, I, my guess is that's the truth of it. <laughs> that's a reply, oh. thank you. All right, Ms. Rob, I don't know if I pronounced that right. Yeah. Uh, you can hear me? Yes. Hi, hi everyone, and um, nice to meet you, uh, David. So I just wanted to ask uh, about uh, replication crisis, especially in psychology and in general too, like in life, in life sciences. So around uh, 2010, like uh, people started to realize that uh, there are a lot of studies that can be replicated. And so people started to implement many standards of like data sharing and open code, code and stuff like that. And there was also emphasis on importance of replication studies, like studies that repeat the experiment as closely as possible to the original study. So there is a sense that if a study is replicated, then it must be true. And less emphasis on mechanism, like by mechanism, I mean explanatory theory. They uh, establish a link and by experiment, then afterwards give an explanation how this process might happen in the mind. And, but uh, uh, the prioritized application seems to miss the point that we can replicate, say, Newtonian laws infinite many times, but they're not actual explanation of the, how the world works, works around us. I just wanted to know uh, uh, how you see this, how, what, what you can uh, uh, say about uh, methodology of like, uh, psychological studies. Yeah, uh, I entirely agree. And uh, I think the, the replication crisis in psychology and related fields um, it, as you as you have just said, 
I think it it um, it's the wrong way to think about it. The re replication crisis uh, is is um, a small facet of uh, what goes wrong when you um, uh, um, apply scientism to psychology and anything that involves knowledge, anything that involves human knowledge. If you try to study it um, as if it were physics, um, you will be doing scientism, you will get it wrong. And um, the, the fact that uh, it's not replicated is is almost a, uh, it's almost a positive feature of a theory because it's at least saying that the explanatory part of the psychological theory, which was kind of unstated and taken for granted and implicit and denied and so on, that that, that thing existed, that there, there was an explanation there. And that's why uh, the explanation can be falsified by an experiment. Um, if, if something can be replicated in psychology, then it's not really psychology. Uh, for example, people do wonderful work um, creating optical illusions and explaining why um, they work. And they work in psychology departments, many of these people, but that's not psychology. That, that is uh, a study of the human visual system and how the information is processed, but that information is not being processed by a creative process. Um, there are other kinds of things that, that stem from that, that you, you, you might ask then after the, after the um, built-in uh, interpretations of sensory data, uh, there is also there is further interpretation happens, um, which can be creative, and which also affects how we perceive things. And you can form theories about those, but those theories um, have to be explanatory, and there have to, has to be a, a model of those. And, and th th there, I would say that it, it, that replicating them on a computer. Um, would be a, might be a useful thing to do with those explanatory theories. So you know, if you can't program it, you haven't understood it. Might might be relevant there. <clears throat> but uh, as as I think you hint, uh, I think the real trouble with psychology and related um, fields is that uh, is scientism um, and and a lack of and even a denigration and deliberate avoidance of. Um, explanatory theories. Uh, th this was explicit in the case of behaviorism, but behaviorism has kind of been rejected. But the aspect of behaviorism that that tries that says that one should not have explanatory theories, but rather one should have massive data which is replicated, um, that is still there, and that's what really needs to be reformed. All right, David. Uh, thanks for doing this. You had mentioned earlier, I'm speaking from Jerusalem, Israel. You had mentioned earlier uh, the Popper lecture and later paper on the non-existence of uh, scientific method. So I, th I just thought you might get a kick out of this volume that I found literally lying next to a dumpster from 1958, which was, is apparently the first Popper piece of writing that was translated into uh, Hebrew. I know you're from Haifa, so I thought you might get a kick out of that. 
Anyway, my question uh, is um, in your in your first chapter in your book in your theory on uh, explanation. Um, I've always wondered, I always got the feeling as you step through the, 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 the phases uh, leading up to uh, um, the, 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 the breakthrough method that we, that we have today, uh, which is of course one step in the long chain. I've always wondered uh, how you see um, the relationship between that theory and Popper's. I'm, I'm, I would normally uh, bring this up, but I know this is a Popper oriented group. So I, I was just wondering if you saw that theory as a corrective, as completely 100% compatible with, and just another way of looking at it, or how do you see it relating to uh, Popper's theories and the theory of explanation? Thanks. So I, I privately and personally think that it is Popper's theory. I, I'm not a historian of science, and I'm not really interested in who had what idea. But I, I see, for example, the first chapter of uh, The Beginning of Infinity uh, is just a, a small explanatory footnote to Popper's epistemology. Um, and if somebody comes along and says, um, no, it's not, you know, Popper thought something completely different, I don't care. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm only interested in what the truth is. And on the other hand, at the other extreme, if, if someone comes along and, and says, that's exactly what Popper said, and, and even your footnote is in a footnote of Popper on page 483. Well, again, I don't care. I, I, yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm trying to understand the world, and I, I'm interested in what's true. And th that's attributing it to Popper is merely a matter of kind of academic courtesy. Um, so uh, I, I think that Popper had an entirely explanatory conception of science. Um, I can't prove that from, from his writings. And I know that, for example, David Miller uh, thinks that that's not entirely true. Um, uh, again, I, I, I'm sorry if it sounds dismissive to keep saying I don't care, but uh, that I, I, it's not what I'm interested in. Thanks. Thank you. Dennis. Hey, guys, can you hear me? Yes. Great. Hey, David, it's Dennis. I had you earlier, you mentioned um, in response to Ella, Ella was asking about self-replicating ideas in a mind. And um, your response was that it wouldn't be really, if I understood you correctly, it wouldn't really be efficient in terms of memory because instead one could have a quantity field of sorts on ideas that would encode how many instances of an idea exist. And then that way one could save a lot of memory. And I, but I wanna take a moment to defend the theory if I may. Um, as it happens, Ella has thought of the same thing when we, when we first started discussing this theory. Now I suppose the quantity field would be denotationally equivalent to having replicators on the surface but the structure of the implementation would be wholly different. And I think one would lose a lot of explanatory power by removing replicators because one would need to come up with separate explanations for everything that the, uh, the replicator-based explanation can currently explain. For example, example, memories, how people evolve, where some ideas survive in the mind, not others. And so I'm not sure just because a programmer would prefer to use quantities instead of replicators that that means that biological would have, evolution would have chosen, I say chosen in scare quotes, to do so as well. Um, most of the criticism of this neo-Darwinian theory of the mind, if you want to call it that, that I've heard so far, is along those lines that we don't need replicators and that we could replace them with something else. 
And uh, if I understood you correctly, your criticism is along the same lines, but the epistemological problem that I see with that is we could say that for any theory, right? I mean, even hard to vary ones, we could think of ways to replace key components of them, even if usually that means that they become easier to vary as a result. And I think that's what happens when we drop replicators. The problem reminds me a little bit of the, the fossil thing, which I believe you've brought up before in defense of the multiverse. So like people might claim that we don't need dinosaur, we, we don't need to claim that dinosaurs really existed to explain fossils, even though that is already a hard to vary explanation, we could simply come up with other ways fossils may have come about that don't involve the existence of dinosaurs. And then denotationally, I suppose those theories are the same or at least similar because the output of the theories, the dinosaur fossils are the same or going a bit off the rails, like we could, we could claim that many, instead of claiming that many dinosaurs existed, we could claim that there was a single dinosaur that had a quantity value that determined how many fossils it left behind or something like that, right? So uh, I, I guess the problem is that this won't convince the advocates of the past existence of dinosaurs rightly, I think, because they would wanna know why dinosaurs couldn't have existed, not why they need not have existed. So in a way, I agree that dinosaurs need not have existed for the same reason that no theory need necessarily be true. Um, and so that applies to self-replicating ideas of the mind as well. But what I'd really be interested in is a refutation, like what, an argument why replicators can't play a role in how the mind works. Can you think of such an argument? Uh, no, and and I, I did say that that I don't know how any of that works, and and uh, and maybe you're right that that maybe it's the fact that I learned programming long, a long time ago, and and my formative programming years were in an era where memory was expensive, and what, it was worth spending time, um, uh, you know, thinking of more efficient ways of storing the data. And now memory is extremely cheap and it's, it's usually not worth doing that. And as you say, one of the things you gain when you have a redundant representation of something is uh, you get much more flexibility in uh, explanatory power. Right. So uh, having said that, I, I think your <laughs> comparison with the dinosaur theory is, <laughs> is a bit unfair. Uh, the, the, the um, uh, if th your problem is that you want to make an artificial fossil, mm -hmm. it would not be a good idea to start by making dinosaurs. Uh, you need to take the shortcut that's available and, and right. make an artificial fossil that way. Uh, and again, it, 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 if you want to explain how the fossil got there, that would be a terrible way of approaching that problem. But if you want to make an artificial fossil, then going via dinosaurs is far too inefficient. But, you know, uh, uh, since I don't know how it works, I, I can't really pontificate about how to do it. Uh, I, I, you know, let, let a thousand flowers bloom. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Parik Gleason. Hi, guys. How's it going? Um, thanks to uh, Sadia and Bruce for putting this event on and for David for answering questions. Um, so my question was about, uh, well, you know, uh, the explanation of how creativity works or just what creativity is and just critical rationalism in general seems to contradict certain commonly held assumptions, uh, which are effectively just statements that people are mechanical and um, 
you know, for example, operant conditioning, which is that uh, uh, learning and just alterations to human thought or the thought of people more generally and, and their behavior is best achieved using like a, a framework of uh, rewards and punishments. Uh, so that uh, when dealing with problems in psychology, like uh, maybe addiction um, and other, you know, it seems to get a lot of uses within psychology and then in behavioral economics as well in the form of incentives and disincentives to do certain things. Um, I think the original question I actually had about specifically about addiction and making choices was sort of answered already when you were speaking about, you know, just uh, creating the best moral theories and so on. But I was maybe uh, wondering if you could uh, say something about incentives and disincentives and how valuable the work done on in behavioral economics is and whether it's just fundamentally based on uh, faulty assumptions and there is not much use to it or it's just maybe contingently useful based on uh, the cultural ideas at a given time or uh, something like that. Uh, yeah, uh, so I, I have to recognize that lots of things in the world do not involve creativity and such things can be analyzed in terms that would be dehumanizing if, if uh, applied to things that do involve creativity. And uh, economics, for example, is, is a field where it's sort of the important issues are dominated by creativity, but not in not, not totally exhaustively described by by uh, creative processes. There are other processes as well, and in in uh, if you're looking at an area of the economy where where uh, not much creativity is being used because people find the the setup basically satisfactory. And what they want is a mechanical way of getting through to various things. Then you can find an algorithm that sets the prices in those situations. Uh, you know, like when there's when there's a, a shortage of some raw material, then you can work out uh, how how at least the first idea of how you can set the price. Although someone else might think of a better idea, and already you haven't modeled that. Uh, and similarly, if there are things that happen in the human mind. In the human brain, I should say, that aren't creative, uh, like you know, optical illusions and and that kind of thing, and if they feed into the problem that you have, which is partly about creativity and partly not, uh, then that might be helpful. I, I'm not going to say that it isn't helpful, but uh, I say that it, it's 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 whenever creativity touches on something, it changes it profoundly, and it really becomes the most important thing to to try to understand in regard to that field. Um, rewards and punishments are, are uh, uh, an abomination, really, in anything to do with humans, because they are uh, trying to forcibly change a human situation which had involved some creativity to one that doesn't. And that is just bad. Um, I, I wonder, you know, it, it's like it's like um, uh, these these purported cures for for gayness and and so on uh, by giving gay people electric shocks and and uh, if if people want to be treated like that, they are making a mistake. Uh, 
I don't care if it works or not. It works in in quotes. You know, I, I'm wondering how how would you cure if you thought that an S and M fetish was bad for you and you had one and you thought it was bad for you. What kind of conditioning would you would would you expect to cure that? Like you know, being given electric shocks. That's hilarious. Thank you. Thank you, um, Carl. Yeah. Hey, David. Thanks for doing this. Uh, it's been really fun. So I remember you saying in an interview that whether animals suffer or not is a philosophical question rather than a scientific one, and I definitely agree. So I'm just curious to hear if you found any convincing arguments for either side of that issue. And if you haven't, how do you think we morally should treat the issue of like whether animals suffer or not? Um, yes, I think not much is known about, about this. Uh, I, I think there are some tiny clues in various places. Um, uh, um, and I think that maybe the main thing is, I, I think there is, since we know so little about this, I think there is room for a a range of um, views that that can all be considered reasonable, depending on where one is coming from. Um, the the one can rule out, I think, uh, the extremes, like like um, thinking that on the one hand, thinking that. Um, that we should respect the, the wishes of trees um, is is very close to being uh, being untenable philosophically because of what we know factually. And at the other extreme, I, I think that it is is um, wrong to adopt a, a position of um, principled callousness uh, and trying to abolish, for example, all laws about animal cruelty and whatever, on the grounds that there's no evidence that anyone is suffering when there's animal cruelty. There but is no evidence, say, uh, but, but I, I think the, the, that is different from saying that there is a, uh, a good reason for adopting that view. Uh, but in between those extremes, there's a huge range of positions that, that I think are reasonable. But would you say that this is a mild form of the precautionary principle that in the absence of knowledge, we should like uh, no, well, try not to... No, well, that one should use the precautionary principle. I, I, I think it's, it's more that what we should do in the face of ignorance. In the face of ignorance, we should be... Uh, first thing is to be tolerant of, of, of multiple views. And the precautionary principle precisely isn't. So, uh, you know, I, I would say be, be tolerant of multiple views about this. Um, uh, you said about evidence that a tiny piece of evidence in, in, in regard to dogs. Um, dogs um, look like they have feelings um, more than uh, similar other animals do. Um, and um, we know that this is because they have been um, subjected to artificial selection for precisely the attribute of looking as though they have feelings. Now, I'm not sure that looking as though you have feelings can be done without having them. Now, I, this is a very weak argument. I, I can easily think of ways that that might not be right. But 
but uh, you know, beggars can't be choosers. I, I, I think we have touches of evidence that maybe some animals have some element of um, uh, uh, qualia. But there is, there, you know, if this is sort of counts as anecdotal evidence or something, that there is strong anecdotal evidence the other way as well. That, that if, if you look at animals like chimpanzees that uh, that look as though they have feelings, that, that in other experiments, um, it's fairly clear that they they do not uh, uh, they do not have an idea of what's going on, that they're just behaving mechanically. Experiments were, uh, but you tentatively sort of... reject the notion of uh, like philosophical zombie dogs. Then I guess yes, that 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 I would uh, yes because that that's um that's one of these all-purpose explanations that could be used about anything. Uh, I I can imagine a theory with a um, physical zombie Jupiter, where Jupiter doesn't exist but only looks as though it does. So th that's a whole class of explanations that have to be rejected on principle. All right. Thank you, Carl. Cameron. Uh, hi, David, can you hear me? Yes. Um, thanks. Uh, my, my question concerned uh, sort of around my trouble reconciling sort of Hopperianism, Deutschianism with um, behavioral genetics, um, namely that it seems to conflict with uh, universal computation. Um, so I think you've noted that your position is that the mind is not a blank slate. You know, so we have inborn genetic knowledge, and but importantly, that can be overridden or overwritten. Um, examples such as fasting, celibacy, and skydiving and suicide. Um, but so, and my understanding of the behavioural genetics literature is that um, genes seem to predict many behaviors. I think a lot of people in that field may say explain, which I think you have issue with. But um, And over the last 50 years, the main evidence of that is around identical twins versus fraternal twins, identical twins being more similar, uh, siblings being more similar than adopted siblings, and, and ad adopted children being similar to their biological parents and not similar to uh, their adopted parents. I think Robert, Robert Plowman describes um, uh, genes influencing behavior as it describes uh, what is rather than what can be, which I, I think aligns with uh, one of your comments around the amount of the amount that genes influence our behavior is itself a product or a function of, of culture. Um, uh, but I think you've also noted that I think your position is that uh, genetic knowledge or genetic influences uh, is probably easy to be overridden and probably happens early on. Um, so I, I have trouble reconciling that with, I, I suppose, the fact of the, the adopted children being sort of systematically similar to their biological parents, their particular biological parents. And it, it seems to me that genetic influences do have a very um, large influence over what currently is. Um, so yeah, if you just want to react to that. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I think that the... Um... Uh, e experiments on twin studies and sibling studies and so on, correlations between uh, behaviors of uh, genetically similar and environmentally similar, none of those e experiments addresses the issue. Uh, what I could say is addresses the issue of 
to put it in computer terms, where is the code located that is responsible for those similarities and differences? And where did that code come from? Um, given that, that, as you just mentioned, given, given that the um, degree of genetic influence on behavior is itself determined by culture, that alone means that you, you can't do an experiment to uh, distinguish um, uh, cultural from, from, you can't do a behavioral experiment to distinguish cultural from genetic behaviors. Uh, or, sorry, you've got to be very careful in talking about these things. You can't do a behavioral experiment to distinguish between differences between different people's genetic or, cult or, or uh, cultural uh, knowledge. Uh, and so I, I, in regard to this issue, I would um, uh, just reject the relevance of all those experiments. Um, the, I, I think there is a very strong argument, as you just said also, that um, genetic behaviors, that, again, the differences between genetic behaviors of different humans are relatively easy to override. Uh, I, I don't mean that one can override them oneself just by waking up one morning and deciding to. Um, on the contrary, that might be very hard. But, but um, uh, for example, uh, memes, either rational or anti-rational memes, uh, can just not override, but just replace um, uh, genetic behaviors systematically because they have evolved the knowledge of how to do so. And uh, there are cultures where um, people are more or less uh, careful about dying. And um, it's not to say that, that someone in that culture or someone in a different culture could change that setting at will. But on the other hand, it is a, I think it provides a very strong argument for saying that if that is a problem that one has, it is soluble. One can, one can uh, alter one's inborn tendencies in the same way that one can alter any other idea that one has that, uh, that affects one's behavior. One can have a, a habit of uh, writing with one's right hand and uh, then if one's right hand becomes paralyzed by, from some illness, one can learn to use the left hand. Um, and one can't do that overnight, but one can, one can do it and one can do it arbitrarily, arbitrarily well. And there are ways of doing it faster or slower. And there are always ways of improving those ways and so on. All right, so I, I think that the genetic uh, explanations or while uh, one, one can always form genetic explanations, I think they are, in, in, in regard to um, behaviors that are changeable, they are, those uh, explanations are, are dehumanizing and, and false. All right, Bart. Hi, uh, thank you, David. Thank you, uh, Bruce and Saria. Actually, tomorrow is my birthday, so I guess this must be one of the most original birthday presents uh, to get to ask you a question. Um, my question is the following. Um, is our society open enough for us to, at one point, uh, refute justificationism in favor of critical rationalism? 
collectively enough? And what do we have to imagine as kind of acceleration effects on the growth of knowledge when that happens? Well, uh, happy birthday. Thank and you. Uh, I think, uh, you know, if we're, if we're to be um, uh, rigorous doctrinaire popperians, <laughs> that's a joke, um, then, then uh, we shouldn't ask, is society rational enough to accept critical rationalism? It's the, we should ask, is society uh, capable of making progress? Because we don't know that critical rationalism is true. We don't know that what we think of as critical rationalism really is critical rationalism, as a, uh, perhaps there's a better view of it that is different from our view, and so on. So the, the question should be, is society capable of making progress? And I think it obviously is. It is making enormous progress. The things that worry us about uh, when we notice that some things are going backwards, uh, it's, it's um, natural and good that we should uh, focus a bit on those uh, rather than go on, you know, go on about how well things are going. We should be focused on problems and, and things going backwards in some respects is a problem and deserves having creativity devoted to it. But overall, the big picture is that there's enormous progress being made at uh, a, a, a rate that's unprecedented in history. So um, yes, I, I think there is such progress. I, I think that that uh, society can, although it may not, you know, uh, people on the whole may make the wrong decisions and everything may go wrong. Um, but it is possible for things to go right. And I think at present, they still are going right on the whole. Um, so I'm optimistic. All right, thank you. And then final question, Aaron. Oh, wow. Um, thanks so much. You, I read an interview where you described being messy and untidy in your kind of um, your home, but being very rigorously organized on your laptop. And I couldn't follow what the distinction was. Why is it orderly in one domain and not in the other? I think I was going through a phase of of uh, experimenting with the Mac OS and noticing how what uh, what um, how pre thought out and sophisticated the model was. Of course, it is nothing compared with today's, and also it's it's not just the Mac that nowadays that has those things. Uh, I think there isn't a, and I think nowadays I I'm I'm pretty sloppy in my management of of my computer as well. So I'm sloppy in all ways. And what's more, I think uh, if I can make a personal self-criticism, I, I think I'm too sloppy in most ways. Um, uh, there's some kind of irrationality there. But being very sloppy compared with the norm uh, on a computer or in one's mind or in one's home or in one's office and all those things is useful for most people most of the time. Um, uh, for the reasons that I said in, in that interview long ago. Um, uh, the, um, the, the reason is that, they, that um, 
in imposing a structure is a theory and uh, one and it includes inexplicit theories and if one takes a view on that that's too rigid then one is uh, putting a strain on uh, the, the possible new ways of thinking about that that one can explore. All right, thank you. Uh, David Deutsch, thank you very much for joining us. I, I know I really enjoyed this. I can tell that this has just been a, a fun chat for most of us. So thank you for showing up for um, the Karl Popper meet and greet. Thank so, you very much. Uh, thank you, David. Uh, just wondering, by the way, did you have anything to do with writing the script for uh, Pickle Rick? Or Rick and Morty by any chance? <laughs> no, I wish I had. And someday, uh, not today, but someday, I wouldn't mind uh, asking you that what if Pickle Rick found himself on Earth, which suddenly transformed into a planet made of cheese? Do you think he would be able to survive? The, the consistency of cheese. Yeah. <laughs> the consistency of cheese. <laughs> Some yeah. other time, just wanted to leave you with that. Yeah, maybe if you do this again next year, you can invite the author of that episode because uh, <laughs> whoever the author or authors were, uh, they got that amazingly right. It's it's like a it's like a manifesto for for human creativity. <laughs> All right, thank you, everybody. Wow. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce thank you. and Nadia, for running this, too. Yes, thank you. Uh, thanks for your place. Thank you. Before the show officially began, we had a chance to interact with David Deutsch and ask him some questions. I include his answers here. See, people, uh, I've seen people coming on TV and saying how they were inspired by Richard Dawkins. And, and then, then they say, well, yes, evolution is the survival of the fittest. And and. Yeah. And so on, and they 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 just they haven't got it, and uh, you know E.O. Wilson hasn't ha hasn't got it. I mean, from our point of view, maybe from, from his point of view, we haven't got it. Or from his point of view, uh, Dawkins hasn't got it. So I, I don't know what the magic thing is that makes progress. Yeah, but if oh, yeah. if a lot of young people are interested in ideas, then there's going to be progress, even if one doesn't notice it from one's own point of view. And, and I agree with you, because one of the things I've realized is it's almost like you have to even go into psychology of it too. It isn't just enough for the ideas to be available. Uh, if people are not willing, it seems like somehow people are either oblivious or, or um, I don't know if they're not interested then why they cling to certain things. Sometimes I wonder if they could even just look at themselves, like almost like turn back on themselves and see why certain thoughts and ideas are coming. Or I, I don't know, I, I really do struggle with that too. Uh, but despite having said that, I think that at least those of us who are willing, who are constantly struggling, it really does help uh, to have those ideas um, you know, I mean, we might have gotten there in a while, but most of us, I mean, we, we, we're have limited lifespans, unfortunately, so <laughs> it helps anything else. I think it takes a while, right? I mean, and there's so many ways to phrase things, like even survival of the fittest, if you think of that as like survival of the replicator that replicates the best, yeah. you can kind yeah. of see how it still fits, right? Yes. And so it's, I, I think that part of it is just, it's hard to get away from the memes that exist in a culture. If, 
if evolution is about survival of the fittest, you can kind of see how even if you understand Dawkins, that's still true. So you still use that term, even though it's misleading. Yeah, well, right? Darwin used it. Right. Uh, but but uh, I, I don't know, you know, you can't see into people's minds, but I, I suspect that in many cases, when people say survival of the fittest, they are imagining animals fighting it out. Yes. I, I think you're right. I think I think we have this big mingling in our minds of different ideas, and we don't really differentiate them that that well. So I think you're right. Um, yeah, but but, I, but ideas also have power, and they illuminate people. And you know, there's there is progress. There really is. Yeah, I, I agree. It's kind of I interesting. Think... It's kind of interesting too that when you look into the theory of evolution too. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, they would say that there isn't any directionality in evolution. It's not like things are going towards more complexity. Well, first of all, there isn't a, you know, a, a definition of complexity that everybody agrees to. But it's kind of hard to turn away and, and not recognize that there is something there. Like we have seen organism becoming more complex. And it kind of goes hand in hand with the whole thing of recognizing why some people somehow think that there is no progress in ideas. Uh, oh, and, yeah, some people like would like to deny it. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, so, sorry. Uh, some people would like to deny that there's progress uh, for various reasons, psychological, political, and so on. Uh, and it, it, once you deny that there's progress, you have a sort of a, an automatic take on a number of things that, that you have to be ignorant about in, 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 if you don't take that view. And so it's kind of comforting. It's kind of comfort, comfort, pessimism. There's a certain comfort in pessimism. In pessimism, right. Interestingly, yeah. I feel the same thing uh, in uh, evolutionary biology too. I think sometimes some people have had such a reaction to the whole, uh, because so far many religions have recognized uh, the, the significance of humans. Uh, you know, as yes. humans, uh, <laughs> like uh, my background, I used to be a Muslim. But we were always told that all the angels bowed down to the human, you know. So God made something and then Satan turned against God because, you know, why I have been worshiping you. So so it seems like a lot of reaction nowadays in, in a reaction to religion, some ideas have been ditched, which I think is such a shame. Yeah, uh, all, all uh, like Popper says that, that uh, all science begins with mysticism. And I think philosophy, you know, begin, began with religion. And uh, there's, the, uh, it, it, and what began with religion means is that religion was groping towards some truth, attained some truth, some falsehood, and usually tried to su suppress criticism. Yeah, uh, so, and I think, you know, maybe the atheist movement should, should give a little ground here and, and uh, realize that that doing better than religion is not synonymous with denying everything that every religion says, because that, that's like uh, starting from year zero. We're, yeah, we're, it almost kind of becomes the same sort of thing that you see in different religion where people, to give themselves credence, they sometimes feel credence, they feel like they have to put somebody else down, because otherwise, how are they going to convince their kids to stick to their religion and not think about something else? So, yes, well, you're still allowed to deny some aspects or many aspects of the opposing view. Mm -hmm. But if you try to deny all aspects of the opposing view, you, you will definitely go wrong. Yeah. And, um, 
Interesting. Uh, Reminds me of the uh, Brexit debate. I was uh, rewatching the uh, video with Dominic Cummings explaining why Leave won the vote. And he said, uh, everyone in this room, I guess predominantly leftists, uh, he was saying, vastly overvalue the, um, the rightness of being on the opposite side of the racists, <laughs> like Nigel Farage and all, and all, these, guys, and all these guys. So being, being on the opposite side of someone who is wrong is not the right way to think about it. Oh, yeah. By the way, uh, David, I have a uh, somewhat random question for you, as long as you're here. Um, what, did you have any expectations about what would happen when you first uh, published The Beginning of Infinity? Um, well, I was hoping that people would buy it. Um, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, well, um, uh, one thing I thought at the time, uh, I, with Beginning of Infinity, I, I ended up um, finishing it under a deadline. And it wasn't as polished as I was hoping it would be. And I had to leave out an entire chapter that I had planned uh, in order, you know, it took, it took uh, uh, almost 10 years to write, uh, as did The Fabric of Reality. But with The Fabric of Reality, I finished it in my own time. And Beginning of Infinity, it was, it was uh, a bit rushed. And uh, so I, I was thinking that it wasn't as good. And... Um, uh, although many people criticized it in many ways, um, few people said it wasn't as good. So, you know, go figure. It, it, it actually seems to, Beginning of Infinity seems to be the more popular of the two books from what I've, from what I've seen. I, yes. Personally, I'm a Fabric yeah. of Reality fan. I actually, I, I read Fabric of Reality two years before Beginning of Infinity came out. So I was anxious uh, when it came out. I'm curious, what was the chapter that you didn't get to do? Uh, I, I don't know what it would have been called, but it, it was about scientism and related issues. Oh, interesting. Uh, a, a few paragraphs of that chapter got into uh, the chapter on choices. Um, uh, you know, the, the working out how many people go, go into the museum and come out, and then you, you form the theory that people are being spontaneously created and destroyed, and that, that, that idea. That was from the other chapter, but... I had been planning a long chapter on scientism. I, I now think that scientism deserves a whole book and I am not the person to write it. So uh, maybe that never would have been written. It's interesting you say that because my first experience when I broke away, uh, I, I, I don't wanna say broke away from religion for me it was a very natural progression when I recognized one day that I was an atheist. But um, I felt kind of almost isolated uh, in a little bit of an isolation in my own community uh, because I was just so weird in, uh, in that way. But I, I started looking for other places and there were a lot of atheist groups and uh, free thinkers and, you know, they call themselves those types of... And when I joined them, I, I kind of almost felt like I was going to some sort of a religious place. Uh, like I really wanted to be with people where I could just literally talk we, you know, without saying, oh, you're not allowed to ask this question. But I didn't find that. And uh, that kind of made me realize when I heard you talk about scientism or I read, I'm like, that clicked right away that unfortunately either you have that or <clears throat> the other end where you're just not allowed to ask certain questions. <laughs> yeah, the shutting down of criticism. Mm -hmm. Yes. I going to say, um, David, it's been fun meeting some new people. Um, I'm currently visiting Austin, Texas right now. So I know you've uh, got a little bit of history there. 
And um, it's funny to see how, uh, or maybe funny is the wrong word, but uh, it's very interesting to note how the knowledge-based view of the world changes the discussion, the, the whole shape of certain kinds of discussions um, that otherwise would be maybe people-focused, like classes of people and um, scientists up here and all these sorts of things, or um, j just asking questions about where knowledge is created, where um, conflicts are happening, where disagreements are happening, simplifies so many things uh, to the point where people will ask, like, my, my favorite recent thing is that somebody will ask me for uh, relationship advice or something. And I'll give them the same caveat that you always do is like, I, I don't know that much about relationships, but uh, what's the problem? And then you can kind of just ask a, a few questions and see, okay, well, you know, I can think a little bit about disagreements. Um, so, and, you know, kinds of questions you've asked. And um, I, I'm constantly surprised that there's always something to be said. It may not be incredibly relevant, but what my friend told me, and I didn't really expect this would happen, um, is he said, um, whenever I talk to Carlos, and you know, I always tell him, you're effectively talking to David indirectly, but uh, <laughs> in some way. And, uh, but you run whenever... your David module, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I said, uh, he says, the problem is unchanged. <laughs> Um, and yet I feel so much better. And the analogy that I gave him was that um, he was like someone who had to build a spaceship uh, and he was currently in the desert. And uh, he had just been transported to a beautiful high-tech facility with all sorts of tools around. Uh, he hasn't built the spaceship yet, but suddenly the situation of surrounding the problem is now totally different. Whereas it might have been this person doesn't like me, this you know it's, it becomes just about what is uh, what, what knowledge is lacking, or you know what discussion do I need to have? How can I uh, take this person who I thought might disagree with me and that would be a problem, and, I, and who I might try to lie to or otherwise try to get something and say, oh well, how can I just make the problem an objective thing we can both try to solve and double our our efforts and the creative uh, possibilities here, and so he just seems to. Um, have that view that things become so much easier once you have this view of, of knowledge, even if you haven't directly solved the problem. Maybe you're describing the transition to optimism. Um, uh, if, if you think about what's going wrong in terms of a lack of knowledge, then in, in a certain, although you still don't know what that knowledge is, in a certain sense, you know that, that what's standing between you and, and uh, the, the good outcome is a lack of knowledge and you, want, you need to create knowledge. And that, that puts a, it already puts an optimistic spin on things even before you solve anything. Whereas if you think of things in terms of people, th then everything becomes who whom, you know, the famous thing that Lenin is supposed to have said. Just a, a, uh, a very accurate description of a whole class of worldviews, who, whom, uh, and you've got to get rid of who, whom. Um, if you get rid of it in politics, that's that's like getting rid of who should rule, and and so on. And presumably, what from what you've just said in in, in relationship things, uh, you get away from who, whom, and you 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 turn towards well, what actually is the problem. The Theory of Anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience, and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, 
please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player. Or you can Google the Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. Some players have their own rating system, and giving us a five-star rating on any rating system would be helpful. If you enjoy a particular episode, please consider tweeting about us or linking to us on Facebook or other social media to help get the word out. If you are interested in financially supporting the podcast, we have two ways to do that. The first is via our podcast host site, Anchor. Just go to anchor.fm slash four dash strands, F-O-U-R dash S-T-R-A-N-D-S. There's a support button available that allows you to do reoccurring donations. If you want to make a one-time donation, go to our blog, which is fourstrands.org. There is a donation button there that uses PayPal. Thank you.